Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. So this week's episode is very fun, I would say. This is on the more fun side of things that you have permission. And uh, partly because of that, I feel okay announcing something a little earlier than I was planning to. I don't talk a lot about my music career on this show. I know I do mention Sherwood, the band that I was in uh, for 10 years, because it was, you know, super impactful. I basically spent my entire 20s in that band. And so that tends to come up, especially when I'm talking to people who have experience in the music industry. The last record I put out was a Sherwood record. It was like a kind of coming back together record in 2016. And I haven't released any music uh, myself for five years. Now I do write advertising music as my day job. People who listen a lot will probably have picked that up. That's transitioning, of course, as I work toward becoming a licensed psychologist. But in the meantime, that is still my primary gig. But I did start working on a record during the pandemic, and it's coming out. The The artist, the band, the project name, if you want, is called Havana Swim Club, and it is this semi-tropical, uh, very sample-based, uh, mostly instrumental kind of indie dance music. And the first track, which you're hearing right now, the first single is called Lagoon, and this track is out on Spotify, Apple Music, anywhere else you listen to music, SoundCloud. Um, there's also a music video on YouTube. So there's a link in the show notes to both the music video and the Spotify 
page for that song. The album is coming out in June. There will be two more singles that are coming on on the way. The next one is called Yeah, and there's also a pre-save link. You can pre-save that to your Spotify account. So I put that link there as well. I'm not going to talk about this record all that much, but, you know, because it's, it's pretty unrelated, frankly, to the podcast work, but it's fun. I'm proud of it. I think it turned out pretty good. And those of you who have, like, work or study playlists of instrumental music, um, you know, you might enjoy adding it to those playlists. So... That's the Havana Swim Club news uh, to today's episode. This started as oh, kind of like a joke or maybe a tweet. Uh, I don't remember, but it, I got thinking of like, man, what are the most plausible and least plausible claims that I was taught growing up as an evangelical Christian? You know, what 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 are things today that I think, yeah, that, that still seems really likely to be true? And then what are the things that are the most unlikely to be true. And maybe those will be kind of funny. Um, and so I talked to Tony Jones. I thought he would be a great guest. And I said, hey, do you have anybody else in mind? I think we should get a third voice in here. And he recommended Lillian Daniel. And boy, was he right. And the way that the two of them took the initial uh, conceit of the game in terms of plausibility and implausibility uh, is really, really fun. And, and turned it kind of on its head in a few instances and made for actually a very meaningful discussion in a lot of ways. So I'm very grateful to Tony and Lillian for joining me. If you want to skip the, like, us getting to know each other and just go straight to the game, that will start around the 22, 23 minute mark. So you can do that unless, but before that, uh, they each kind of introduce themselves and we talk a little bit about plausibility in general, plausibility structures, stuff like that. Okay, I think that's about it. We'll just get into it. Tony Jones and Lillian Daniel, thank you guys so much for joining me today for this, I think what will be kind of a fun, almost like a game showy type of an episode insofar as talking about the damnation of billions could be part of a game show. I just don't know if you should, I don't, I think you should set your listeners, you know, set their expectations low. It's going to be a crappy episode. Not funny or enjoyable. <laughs> and then they're kind of like, well, I'm just going to listen to for I'll just give it an hour and see if it turns maybe better than Dan said. Yeah, I'll I'll give it the first hour and decide if I want to listen to the last 30 minutes. They'll really <laughs> if, if that's what people are doing, yeah. they they're an ideal listener because they're very bad with their time. And so I can just kind of get them hooked with anything. Um, you're hearing I the asked voice my of, boys. Re- I I asked. Sorry to interrupt the host, ahead. but let me just say, <laughs> I did ask my boys recently. I'm like, how can you listen to Joe Rogan for three hours? And my older boy was like, you only really listen to the first hour because he and his guests are so stoned. Yeah, then they the just end go. Of the first hour. Yeah, <laughs> it's just incomprehensible. See, I, 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 I always realized... skip ahead. Like I skip through all this stuff on all the podcasts. To get to the yeah, content. I'm like, the banter? Yeah, the right. banter. I hate the banter. I can't believe you're making me bant. Our our mutual friend, Lillian, I don't know if you know Trip Fuller, but Tony and I's mutual friend, Trip, this is a bit we have where I, I tell him, like, you know, I just start at the 10-minute mark or whatever on his episodes, and you know, because he has the longest intros ever. But oh. he says pe- when he stops doing them, listeners tell him to do them again. Really? 
Dan, I gave him so much shit for those intros, and I finally stopped because he told me that. He's like, well, I've tried to peel them back, but everyone's like, no, I want you to just go off on crazy-ass tangents for yeah. 10 or 15 minutes. I'm like... Give the people what they want. Yeah. Mark, If it yeah, works for Mark Marin, I guess it works for Trip. Right, same. Um, so you've been hearing the voice mostly of Tony Jones. You guys will remember him from a recent episode, so we won't, we won't have Tony introduce himself, but Lillian... Uh, you're new to You Have Permission, so could you please tell us just a couple minutes about yourself? Sure. I'm a preacher and writer in Iowa, and I'm talking to you from my office here in Dubuque, Iowa, at First Congregational Church. And you're, uh, and what, what denomination is that that you pastor? United Church of Christ. Congregational is the part I identify with, though. Okay. You know, the congregation. I don't really know the, what that means. Oh, well, they, well, it means we're the best, and we were the pilgrims who came over. We were on the run from, well, first we got kicked out of England, hit out in Holland, came over on the Mayflower, started a lot of churches in New England, a number in the Midwest. And um, much later, various mergers took place in which the Congregationalists ended up in a denomination um, in 1957 called the United Church of Christ. A congregation which, uh, okay, I grew up in a Congregationalist church, as Lillian knows, and we share that love of Congregationalism. My home church, founded by my grandparents, refused to join that merger in 1957 because they thought the denomination that was forming was not Congregationalist enough. Meaning it was a denomination. Like, we're a denomination that doesn't want to be a denomination. But we're really good independently. (laughs) Congregational and denominational inside baseball aside, I just want to also say that, Lillian, you are the author of multiple books. I'm looking at your Google Books thing here. Most recently, tired of apologizing for a church I don't belong to and when spiritual but religious is not enough. So that's kind of where you're coming from. And people will have a link to uh, an author page of yours of some kind in the show notes. And you're friends with Tony. And I said, Tony, I want to get one more person in on this implausible, plausible idea. And you are the first person that came to mind for him. And so we were very glad that you said yes. I'm so glad. Yeah, Tony and I've known each other for ages. We were on some boondoggle project together, <laughs> the Faith and Chicken Project at Yale. Wasn't really what it was called, but that's what we named it. <laughs> and we, we became fast friends at the back of the meetings. So what we're going to do here is we're going to go through, I call it kind of a game show because we've each made lists of the most plausible and the least plausible Christian claims that we were given being raised Christian. All three of us were raised Christian, although interestingly in different branches of Christianity, which we will talk about before we start. And we're going to kind of go around in the circle and, and chat about these items because that word plausible is, is the focus of today's episode. I wanted to do a little riff and get your guys's take on plausibility structures because they keep coming up. Like I was just having uh, beers with a fellow vaccinated buddy of mine Yesterday, so great to be able to do that again. And we were talking about, you know, his family and some QAnon stuff and and just how difficult it is uh, and, and how like certain attitudes will push people into that stuff when they feel unwelcome in polite society. Then they might find a new group online or amongst work colleagues or something that all disagree with the with the consensus view. And then if they plug into that group all of a sudden QAnon seems very plausible because a bunch of people around them find it plausible. 
And I just have been really feeling like plausibility structures explain a greater percentage, put it that way, of of why we believe certain things. And it can kind of explain why we were taught some of the outlandish things that we were taught. It makes me think specifically of the interviews I did with baby boomers around the Jesus movement and eschatology. And all four of them said that in 1971, it just seemed obvious to everybody that the world was ending soon and Jesus was coming back and prophecies were being fulfilled. None of them questioned it at the time. And it was just like everybody believed that. And yet, of course, that was like insanely wrong and had almost no real evidence whatsoever for it. But it was so plausible because everybody else found it plausible. This also, I think, urges some caution for us that if we switch tribes, you know, as I have done, I'm no longer an evangelical. Now I'm a progressive Christian. Are there going to be items that seem plausible to me now that aren't true, but that every progressive Christian just totally agrees is true, right? So it, it both explains and and encourages me to be more critical in my thinking. So that's my little kind of plausibility bit. And I'm curious if you guys have any reactions to that. Well, I think one thing that's become abundantly clear of late is how the people you surround yourself with and the social media streams that you self curate definitely lead to these kind of mental plausibility structures that you're talking about. And yeah, I mean, all of us have stories. I have a story of a dear friend of mine who's a physician and was at a dinner party and most of his friends are, you know, red state, Trumpy kind of people. And he was at a dinner party. It was a 50th birthday party. And they were really pressing him on why he got vaccinated. And they're just like, well, what about the mercury? And he said, well, so he could just everything with data, like, well, they outlawed mercury in 2003 in, va- in vaccines. Well, what about autism? Oh, well, that study's been totally debunked. Well, what about this? What about the, oh, they're changing your DNA with these COVID vaccines. What about the government? Well, I don't just trust, I just don't trust the government. And finally, he said, somebody asked him like, well, what do you think the difference is between you and, you know, people who aren't getting vaccinated? And he said, quite honestly, I think it's people who didn't go to college. Don't they, they're not really smart enough to understand how, like when you give them the data, well, the, the woman whose birthday it was started weeping and he didn't know why. Well, her husband called this guy the next day and was like, Oh yeah, my, my wife never finished college. So (laughs) he didn't know that he just assumed everybody in this group around the table was like, just like him, highly educated, very professional, wealthy, et cetera, which they were, Hmm. but She's a vaccine skeptic and sure. So he was making a, a, a generalization that would be very offensive to a lot of people. But the point being, there are, you know, even in that circle, they're pressing this doctor and he's responding to them with actual data. But it's just not enough. He shoots down every one of their arguments. and They're still like, well, I still just don't trust the government putting a needle in my arm. Right. I would not have recommended that his answer be people are uneducated. <laughs> By the there way. may have been a they may, they may have been a couple of bottles of wine into the sure dinner sure by but that that's point. not that is not <laughs> persuasion best practices let's just say that no, way I think he was actually so frustrated with he was like, oh, giving sure. them you know yeah but I I do think 
in the year 999, in December of 999, like people climbed on their rooftops on New Year's Eve all across Europe because Jesus was going to like come galloping in with the rising sun from the east and begin the new millennium. So this isn't, you know, just a modern problem. Right, right. Lillian, what do you think about the this plausibility structure thing and the role it plays? Yeah, it's so interesting because – so I was not raised evangelical. I was actually raised in the Episcopal Church or the Anglican Church because we moved around. I grew up moving around to Asia and Europe and different countries. So church was very consistent. It was this Anglican prayer book in English, you know, wherever we live. And there was no obsession with b- belief, either or, right? Like that's when things will get to on my list. And I think there's good and bad with that. But the whole question of plausibility, implausibility, what do I believe? Like, I've never had that be a big part of my faith life. It never, I never presumed that everything hinged on what I gave intellectual assent to or not. It seems absurd to me that it would. Well, you clearly weren't raised evangelical because that is uh, how that is like the whole Kitten caboodle is uh, we have these reasons and they are they are from the text or they are from apologetics or, you know, or whatever. That's probably not I'm probably painting with too broad a brush. I'm sure there are people who were raised more in a Pentecostal type holiness situation where it wasn't so much rationality. It was like, you know, you have the proof because you've had these certain experiences like tongues and whatever. But I, I have recently heard people describe evangelicalism as as primarily an intellectual argument or an intellectual form of Protestantism, which is so sad because it's like an anti-intellectual intellectual form of, which is like, it's self-crippling basically well, it's a to weird do that. combination where on the one hand, everything seems to hinge upon this intellectual ascent, or if you can't make that intellectual ascent, it seems to hinge upon some feeling or emotion, which yes. you either have to experience it or make it up or fake it and you feel like an imposter yeah yeah what it's clearly not anymore that it was when i was growing up was a personal piety like personal piety is not you know what i mean yes that's not a part of evangelicalism anymore but when i was growing up it was huge yes like you can't have sex with somebody till you're married and you can't do drugs and you can't lie and you shouldn't gossip i mean we See, the Episcopal and, Church, we encouraged that. to do those things. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, Lillian, I am jealous that you were raised Episcopal, and I bet that that will be what most listeners feel by the end of this conversation. Is jealousy? Is jealousy, yes, or just yeah. like uh, wistfulness. Like, I, I just yet. wish. <sighs> I know. Okay, that's true. <laughs> so uh, last question before we get started then would just be, so these claims, the plausible and implausible, let's just each say where we were hearing them from. So I'll start. I mostly got the implausible ones from like the occasional teacher at my evangelical high school. Uh, these are mostly the, the super implausible stuff is not coming from my family and mostly not even coming from my church, which was a sort of moderate California evangelical church. It was actually an interdenominational church that kind of ended up in the non-denominational zeitgeist of the 90s. Um, but it was started as a bunch of small uh, mainline denominations coming together and hiring an architect in like the 1800s or early 1900s. 
So that's where the implausible stuff is mostly coming from. And then the plausible stuff is, is from everywhere. And it's just, it's basically just Jesus and the stuff about Jesus that seems very plausible to me today. So that's where mine is coming from. Uh, Tony, where are these claims coming from that you're raised with? Yeah. Well, I just, I want to like put a caveat in there, even I probably position myself between the two of you. Like I was raised in a congregational church, like I've already mentioned. So it was pretty mainline-y. I mean, if you would have walked in, you would have been like, it it looks exactly like the church in the Frank Peretti novels that the Antichrist runs. It has like (laughs) the ministers wore a black robe and they had red velvet carpeting and like brass uh, handles on the doors. Like really, when I read those Frank Peretti novels in college, I'm like, holy crap, that's the church I grew up in. Okay, but like so many churches, it had hybrid influences and like the youth ministry in which I was involved had hired a guy from Bethel College. So very evangelical. He'd grown up in an evangelical church. The youth ministry had been founded by a guy who came from Young Life. So there were these kind of Young Lifey Youth for Christ. uh, You know, we were reading Dawson McAllister, who, by the way, just died for old school evangelicals. Dawson McAllister died uh, recently. Yeah. So I just want to say this, like to bridge a gap a little bit, too. I'm currently teaching a class for a UCC church, just like uh, Lillian uh, Pastors. This is a church that, like, performs gay weddings, is fully affirming, you know, it it has men and women pastors on the staff, et cetera, et cetera. I'm teaching a class on the Gospels. Last Wednesday, I did about a 10-minute thing on how we date the authorship of the Gospels. And I said to them, I'm like, you will hear out there in in the world, you know, people will try to date the Gospels earlier because it makes them seem more reputable and more trustworthy. And I'm going to tell you that most I'm dating. I'm like, I'm going to date Mark around 70. And that's the kind of the consensus consensus. among biblical scholars who don't have an apologetic agenda. Okay. These are, these are progressive Christians by any measure. Okay. Two of them emailed me links within 24 hours after that class saying Mark was a disciple of Peter. He got everything straight from the lips of the apostle and he wrote his gospel before the year 50. Here's, here's why Lee Strobel and Josh McDowell, uh, you know, affirm that. Uh, so I'm, and these are UCC people. This is what I'm saying. Like, wow. It makes its way in. Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. So evangelicalism anyway, is a hell of a drug. You might say, I did want to say too, uh, my, my Christian junior high and high school was started by young life people. So that's another uh, connection that we have in terms of this yeah. Lillian, we know you were raised Episcopal slash Anglican, but where specifically were you getting the claims you're, you're going to be talking about? So from my list and I'll tell you where I get them, but some of them were those childhood, you know, immersed in the Episcopal church for my life. A couple of them I will reference I learned in the United Church of Christ, and one is from Divinity School. Okay, great. So what we're going to do is we're going to get through as many as we can, and we're just going to stop at 90 minutes, and we're going to switch off between implausible and plausible. We're going to each start with our number one so that we can make sure to get to the big boppers, and, and we'll just get through whatever we can get through. And then I have a couple funny ones that some friends texted me that I will share at the very end for some just comic relief. So Tony, why don't you start? Give us your number one 
most implausible Christian claim that you were raised with? All right. The number one, I'm good. I'm glad I get to beat Lily into this because I, I don't know if it would be on her list, but I'm pretty sure she'll agree with me. You're yeah. the psychologist, so you can tell me if this is actually not a psychologist, implausible or not. Go ahead. Yeah. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. Still got a while. In training. Uh, in training. I'm learning psychology. Yes. Yeah. I think an implausible claim that I was told growing up by my Christian leaders, pastors, etc., church camp counselors, is that it's realistic to think that a human being can have sex with only one person for their entire life. I think that is implausible for the vast majority of human beings. I, I know there are exceptions. Uh-huh. There are people who practice celibacy. There are people who are monogamous and happily so, but for the vast majority of people on this planet, it is implausible to tell them that they can have sex with just one person for their entire life. Wow. You did not hold back. Just starting with the big guns, Tony Jones. This is why we bring you on, I guess. (laughs) I don't want to be the first person to respond to this. Lillian, will you please respond first? (laughs) I agree. It's implausible. I mean, you have to do other things with your time. You have to go to work. You know, you can't be constantly having sex with that one person. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That was a very creative um, interpretation of the word. Dodge. That was a creative dodge. Mm, Lillian, I would love to hear what you, do you really think that's plausible for a Christian to teach their, their adolescence? No, I think it's, I think it's implausible and I think it's not biblical. I was not raised with a lot of guilt and shaming around sex. My, my sense was the church had no interest in sex or my sex life. So when I encounter people who have all this baggage with that, to me, it just seems crazy. And I, when you look at the scriptural references, I mean, Jesus says nothing about this stuff. This was very low on Jesus's list. And I really, I think Jesus could care less about who or how many people you're sleeping with. It's how you treat people. Yeah. I mean, so I am known, I think, as a little bit of a a prude sexually compared to most of my progressive Christian buddies. And and Tripp and I probably share this share this designation and and our friend Sarah Lane Ritchie, the theologian, is kind of constantly giving us shit for it. But yeah, I mean I I guess my thinking on this is less biblical and more just kind of pragmatic. Like, so depending on what we count as sex, you know, I've only ever had sex with my wife and she's only have ever had sex with me. And unless one of us dies or some other very bad thing happens, you know, yeah, you don't you don't want to get you don't want to get too high and mighty. Marriages do end even when people are, you know, healthy and and trying their best. But assuming no catastrophe or, you know, how old will we be when the other person dies? How much mojo do we have left? You know, we'll see. Uh, But we may end up, you know, technically. Now, that doesn't include oral sex or hand jobs or whatever you want, whatever you want to put in the in the list. I was in a band, you know, when I met her. So but. I don't know that I've lost anything, but I also feel like I've gotten kind of lucky. You know, I met her at 23. I have friends who are single into their late 30s and early 40s. I would basically never expect them to stay virgins. I wouldn't I wouldn't encourage them to. I don't even think I will encourage my son to be a virgin when he gets married. But I, I do worry to be a about once he's married. <laughs> Definitely not once he's married. Dan, let me add an amendment. Let me add an yeah. amendment then on, on this. 
then my amendment is it's equally implausible when Christians teach that vaginal penetration is somehow some sacrosanct different deal than all the other stuff you just mentioned, bro. hundred percent, hundred percent. So you can't say if you're getting, if you're getting oral sex from multiple girls in the back of the tour bus, you can't go to your wife and be like, but Hey honey, I'm a virgin because my penis has never actually been in a vagina. Come on. But to me, this is the part I don't get is why, why is this even a topic? Like, does God care about anything we just discussed? Like, where in scripture, where in the tradition do you find that, you know, this is the first thing we should start off by by hammering out here? Oh, sure. No, definitely. I'm, I'm with you on all that, Lillian. The, my concerns are pregnancy, disease, flourishing. Like, the, these are the things. I, I found myself just becoming a regular parent in thinking about this. Like, I just don't want him to get someone pregnant too early. I don't want him to get a disease. I don't want him to pass on HPV to girls. You know, I, you know that, those, those are the things. Uh, certainly HIV, stuff like that. And so, yes, first of all, Tony, you're totally right that drawing the line at penetration is arbitrary, except it's not arbitrary insofar as it leads to children. I think that's the part that makes sense to me, but it's not the way it was framed because I didn't have a more Catholic approach. I had like a thoroughly birth control friendly Protestant approach that then makes the the penetration as the line be very arbitrary. Now, if you're Catholic, I think it's different if you're, you know, if birth control is kind of off the table and and stuff like that. So I, I don't know. I don't know what else to say. To I just love that you started with that, Tony. I think you're such a dick for doing it, um, and I, I you, and I, I appreciate it. Are those people are going to keep listening it, past the first hour now. The whole thing represents, though. I think it's and I think it is sort of an American obsession in within Christianity about these questions of sex and who's sleeping with who and body parts and right. all this stuff, and it really is ridiculous on all sides. Don't you think, Lillian, it goes back to one of our congregational forebears? You know, uh, the the Scarlet Letter sh- just showed how like ingrained that was in in Puritan theology and Puritan culture, and in some ways, the legacy of American Protestantism is that you know comes out of that. Like that was a very dominant gene in in American. Oh, Protestantism. but I mean, we can go back much further. It's about economic rights and property and how property is handed down. And when, and women, right. you know, there's a long tradition in the Bible of women being sort of a step above cattle in terms of property. But obviously it's in the Ten Commandments. Yeah, but these are obviously things that when you are raised in a tradition that says, you know, you don't take this literally, you you would never go back there for for sort of you know an ethic of of marriage if you will i mean i think you know dan's points are the points that a good psychologist would make like i want it i want you to be my family therapist and talk to my teenager about all those questions but how is this sort of essential to the life of faith and following jesus i don't know i think i think satan loves it when we go down these rabbit holes and don't talk about the real stuff Oh, yeah. And it's, you know, we can move on after this. Uh, you guys can, of course, respond to me. But it makes me think of the episode I did early on with with Richard Beck, who is a psychologist, about about the psychology of disgust. And the, I think that that explains a good chunk of why specifically questions around homosexuality can stay so central when they are, number one, dealing with a 
especially historically, a very small percentage of the population. Number two being there's like three verses about it. Like, it's just not a big thing. And yet it is so disgusting to people in the in the literal, you know, bodily sense of that. It may it gives them a gag reflex. And so it that vaults it up a few items in the list because it feels pertinent, even if the text itself and everything is arguing against it. And within the life of Jesus, there's a consistency in which he, as if he anticipates this purity culture and then, you know, and the way it's going to go, he consistently seeks out the woman who is considered disgusting or is considered the Jezebel or the temptress or what have you, you know, and I think it's with good reason that, yeah, he, he wasn't married. I I do think, I mean, I want to take it seriously. What Tony says, I think so much damage has been done to people around this stuff and shaming them about their bodies and all these things. And also I think sadly, some people may have been rushed into marriages that weren't good for them, you know, by hormones and guilt and, and the rest of it. And I think that is a, a real disservice. And I will also say, I, I think this does cross denominations, even among progressive open denominations that say, you know, we'll do your gay marriage. I do think we privilege married life and the sort of happily married couple, often in the person of the pastor and the pastor and their spouse will be idealized. And when we talk to kids about it, we say we're open to everything. We love everybody. But if you are as blessed as I am to find that special someone, blah, blah, blah. And that's the story we share. And I think we we do that. It's it's dangerous. If that's the only story they hear from the pastors, it's dangerous. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to see a study about how much of the exodus of young people from the church could be at least partially attributed to the fact that they're getting married later and having kids later and that the church doesn't really know what to do with people after high school before they have their first kid or at least get married. I'm sure somebody has done some work on that, but I don't know it. Look, I I grew up at a church mainline too. And like I said, but our pastor growing up would not marry a couple that was living together. He made them move out for the ever number of months that they were in pastoral counseling. And this isn't a progressive church. They would never do that today. They marry couples all the time who are living together. Like that's just has fallen by the wayside. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's move on just because I want to get to many things here. Lillian, do you still want me to go yes. next and you go last? Okay. So I'll start with one that we could probably get through pretty quick. Here's my number one most implausible claim. When people did something on earth, the entire physical order of things changed, like animals started dying and eating each other. And when people on earth do some certain stuff, like reach everybody with the gospel, the entire universe will come to an end. This is f-ing batshit. I mean, like I'm at a point where I cannot even like, even when I was being raised, we knew how many stars were in the universe. Like the, I could understand someone believing this in 1500. I cannot understand it in 1990. Like there's just, And I guess there were, you know, there's a little bit of young earth creationism that maybe if you buy that, maybe if you buy young earth creationism, the first one can make more sense of like, there's no death and somehow the order of things changes. But even on young earth creationism, you really think that you still know about galaxies. 
Like you still, and all of that ends because humans tell enough people about Jesus. Like what the, so this is my number one, most implausible. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Agreed. I think it's also like the height of grandiosity, right? Like so many of these, yeah, these scenarios involve like an inordinate importance on our role and meeting someone with the gospel. Like, yeah, you think God couldn't do anything. Yeah. The the first time I ran into that was when I got to college in the fall of 1986 and got into campus, got into a campus crusade Bible study. And I'd never heard that before, but Bill Bright was on something like, 2 billion Christians by the year 2000. Like that was, he was fundraising off that shit. And it was like, it's, I don't, I can't even remember, but there's some verse and it's like, once everybody that they read it to mean it, once everybody hears the gospel. So they weren't even, they didn't even like, you don't even need to accept Jesus in your heart. You just need to hear the gospel. So we're just going to get it down to four laws and we're going to put a tract in your hand or show you the Jesus movie dubbed in your Swahili dialect, right? right? On a bed sheet, hanging on a tree outdoors. We saw all this stuff at Campus Crusade. And I was just like, this is pure madness. But I will tell you this, that I think you're right, Dan, the way you framed it, because I think for all intents and purposes, that those people lived as though the earth is the center of the universe. Yes. So in some ways, they're like pre-Copernican Christians, I mean, you know, there's the there's the there's the line in the Larry Norman song, like if there are people on other planets, then Jesus died for them too, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, which is so. Do you remember that? I don't know the song, but I'm well. I'm very familiar with that that stance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, so somebody even has asked them the question before. Well, what about the people on other planets? Well, then Jesus must have gone there and died on a cross in that planet. <laughs> I mean, I would say that I think it is I think it's the psychological default of a homo sapien to live as if the earth is the center of the universe. I think it takes extra stuff to change that. I mean, just think about the daily process of survival, of having of having a family, of living in community, of of getting through the day, being fed, being sheltered, whatever, having some enjoyment. It's just not pertinent to your life that there are billions of galaxies that each have billions of stars. It's like it's maybe least pertinent thing to your life. I mean, by definition, is what goes on in outer space, right? And so I can forgive people at an individual level for not living as if the universe is out there. It's actually hard to do that. But once I start making a curriculum, and it is the year of our Lord, 1990, then my patience runs out. You know, that's all I'm saying. Uh, Lillian, get in get in here on this, please. Okay, I'll take us in a different direction then. So, as I said, raised in the Episcopal Church, where there's a big emphasis on liturgy and the Eucharist. And it's not a denomination that's known for long sermons or Bible studies. And I think what I believed and was taught was that the Bible was an ancient and irrelevant book that has no bearing on our lives but should be only used in moderation to sprinkle like a condiment, you know, a verse Mm. or two upon our already held virtuous beliefs. Interesting. The Bible is ancient, irrelevant, um, sort of a barbaric book that we shouldn't look at too closely. We should trust the minister to give us a few little proof texts, you know, that we can sprinkle on 
stuff we want to do. So I love how different our childhoods were in this sense. What do you think would be the motivation? Like, like why was that a, a claim? You know, what, what was going yeah. on that made that make sense? I mean, sense, I feel they did not want us to open the book because we would discover how barbaric and ancient and uncivilized it is. So it's embarrassing. It's embarrassment. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think a lot of liberals are embarrassed that the Bible stands at the center of Christianity. Don't you think mm-hmm. that, Lillian? I, I was taught that it doesn't. You know, I was never wow. told that. doesn't stand at the yeah, center. I was never told that. So I remember, you know, going to college, and I mean, I really didn't understand. Like everybody, you think whatever church you're raised in, you know that that Christianity is a worldwide religion. And I thought 98 percent of the people were Anglicans or Episcopalians. So I go to college, and you know, somebody knocked on the door and said, "Would you like to come to our Christian Bible study?" I was thrilled. Nobody had ever let me study the Bible before. And I got there and all they wanted to talk about was how they didn't like the lesbians and this and that. And, uh, and I was devastated. You know, I I was literally, I was so naive. I was shocked that this was what Christians got together to study the Bible for. I was hoping we could read it, you know, and get into it. But yeah, I think there was a sense that, you know, it just will ruffle feathers. It's sort of embarrassing, you know, and, and trust the minister to sprinkle a few sweet words on there. So we all sort of heard the same thing. And in a sense, that was the liberal church doing the same thing we accused the conservatives doing, proof texting, not really getting into it, but just saying, you know, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, or, you know, do unto others, or do not judge, lest ye be judged. Um, And that's about it. You know, nothing in there about the messier stories. Is there a bit of a Catholic lineage here? And I'm I'm going from the outside. Yes. But, you know, there, there is a sense that a lot, you talk to a lot of people who are raised Catholic and it's like, look, you go and it's a part of your family tradition and you hear some stuff and you get the little bits that they read, you know, but it, there is a, a large swath of Catholicism that ends up in practice being kind of what you're describing. And of course, Episcopal and Anglicanism, that's the closest thing yeah, it's uh, just in the Protestant listening world. Listening to, to scripture, you listen to four different scriptures out of context. You know, the lectionary was right. built on the presupposition that we had a sense of where these texts fit, and we don't. So it just becomes, you know, at worst, it's the Charlie Brown teacher. You just hear, rah, 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 and you use it for meditation time. And it's just sort of getting us toward the main event, which is the Eucharist which is the communion. But yeah, the idea was it's sort of embarrassing. And even after these things get read, I mean, first, the lectionary, of course, takes out so much of the most awkward judgmental parts of the Bible. So they sort of, you're inoculated against that. But but even when these things came up, they were awkward. You know, rather than address it in the sermon, there'd just be this sort of awkward cough, like, you know, well, I'm sure we all agree that was a bit awkward. Moving right along, you know, if your if your last name starts with A to H, you need to bring a pie on, you know, to the, the pop. <laughs> <laughs> and and one of the things I find hypocritical about progressives in this regard is progressives in general take great pride in the fact that they don't shy away from difficult intellectual ideas like progressives. I know they read books on the Holocaust and they're reading cast and white fragility. And they're like, let's dive in deep to the complex and, and terrible 
legacy of American slavery, you know, but they're like, ah, eh, the Bible makes me a little squeamish. So let's not talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> like, and it, you don't I, run away. You don't run away from other uncomfortable ideas. Like that's kind of your thing. And see, this is what I think, but I think this has changed for the better. This is one of the things that like the decline of mainline Protestantism, et cetera. Um, you can bemoan it. I think it's good news, you know, probably because a lot of people are going out of social obligation or what have you. But the people who come now, like I get the sense they really want to be there, but they want to learn about mm. this, this thing. Like if they're going to sit through a Bible reading, they want you to teach it to them and they're hungry for it. Otherwise, why waste your time? And so I do think that you see the Jesus seminar, all this stuff, you know, but our church members are getting it on the history channel now. So they, so you better be, teaching and talking about it. And I think that has changed somewhat, but I do think, you know, the Episcopalians were a little guilty of just like, let's just move right along and get to get to something. Nothing to see here. (laughs) I I, want to move along too, but one last thought on it that I'm curious if you agree is that it's also intellectually dishonest in that it ignores that the secular humanist ideals which come from Western philosophy and science, which come from clergy members in the church and basically from the Judeo-Christian tradition, that's what the values are that make us embarrassed about the text. Like, it's not like something else came along and made us embarrassed about it. It's that I would say the spirit brought us beyond the barbaric parts of the text, but used the fundamental story and, of course, used the person of Jesus and the prophets of the Old Testament and all of it, right? Like, uh, And so it, it's, and it's actually to be celebrated that we have – that we – it is a part of our past and, yeah, we're not doing this anymore, wisdom, but there's though, a through line. In their wisdom, they put together this collection of books that directly contradict each other, that have different right. description of the birth narrative. And, you know, it's as if, like, do people think, like, Oh, I'm the first generation that noticed that. Like we're a generation of geniuses that we noticed that. No, the people who put it together did so because they had internal to the the putting together of the the collection was the idea that this is mysterious and it is not to be taken literally. Yeah. That's great. So uh can we go snake order so we then start again with you, Lillian, and, and go back? So can you give us a plausible, one of the most plausible claims? that you were raised with creeds and recited liturgies, right? But creeds such as the apostles creed, they are testimonies or expressions of faith. They are not a test of faith. Mm. Oh gosh. I just felt so much happiness and like my shoulders just (laughs) shrank down. All the tension went out of my body. When you said that creeds are an expression, not a, not a, doctrinal litmus test to tell if you're in yeah so like you know bless you episcopal yeah as soon as you're intelligent enough right like as a kid or as a grown-up you know to say like wait when we say i believe we believe you know is that like what if you don't believe it like you're allowed to ask that question and a good minister will come back and say this is a beautiful poetic expression of faith and there, there are days when I don't believe it, or there are other times where the mystery makes sense to me. Um, and we say it together in the same spirit that we sing hymns that might have theology or imagery that we don't get either, but that there's a freedom with that. And that, you know, I feel like I learned this young, that, that we recited that in the spirit of singing a hymn and it wasn't a doctrinal checklist that we were using to make sure the right people were in the room. 
Tony, no matter what you ever do or say to me for the rest of our friendship, you brought Lillian into my life, and I will credit that to you. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, boy. Mutual sorry, I'm sorry. here. I'm sorry to make you uh, embarrassed there. I just – I know that listeners are feeling what I – I know that listeners feel how I'm feeling right now, and so I am speaking for the listeners coming, oh, coming just... largely from the – sort of post-evangelical world that most of us come from. Okay, then let me throw a little, you know, yeah. shake a little salt in. Let me shake us. a little yeah. salt in your mug of coffee, okay? Thank you. Because the creeds, Lillian's <laughs> right, of course. The creeds are, I love that in the early church, the creeds were sung. You know, they were part of the liturgy, right? In another language. I do appreciate, yeah, I love it. And I mean, I... Honestly, a lot of times when I'm like writing, I pull up old masses in which the creeds are sung in Latin. And I love that part about it. But let's not let's not bullshit ourselves here. Like people died over syllables in the creeds and the church split, you know, the biggest schism in the history of the church happened in 1054 because of a syllable like in the creed. So people fought over the creeds in the early church and a lot of people were excommunicated. Well, a word, but it's the and, four, you know, four it's the syllables. A- yes, it's the, it's the Q-U-E. That's the syllable. It's ah. the Q-U. It's not it's feel the, the, and way. the it's, sun. Right, right, right. It's just the, sun the quay. Is, right. It's, it's just, just the quay. quay. Not, it's the, just the, quay not the, the filio. filio. No, nobody had a problem with filio. With the sun being in the but creed. But you weren't raised with that, it's, it's, right? Like, I mean, that's not something you, you know, you were taught in the church you were raised in. No, we didn't. We are a non-creedal tradition. As you know, congregationalists are fundamentally non-creedal. And the reason congregationalists are non-creedal, the, that our tradition stopped, you you know, when, when it started with those pilgrims that moved to Holland and then fled to the United States or the North America, they could see what creeds had done in the church in Europe and creeds were used to keep people out and put other people in Mm -hmm. and creeds, the creeds were controlled by the clergy class and they, their big thing was it's your individual conscience in relationship with your creator. Nobody gets to tell you the shape of your belief. There is no creed. It's a non-creedal tradition because it's about basically the spirit in your heart and your individual conscience relating to your creator. So I just think sometimes us like post-liberal, post-evangelicals, we tend to romanticize the creeds a bit. But I think, I no, I think we, we don't teach about them properly and we don't explain. So like now as a congregational minister, right? I, we say the apostles creed. Now we say it probably once a month. We have like different ones we rotate through. I love a new creed from the United Church of Canada. Sometimes we'll say the full serenity prayer as Niebuhr wrote the whole thing. Other times we'll do like the prayer of St. Francis, make me an instrument of your peace. But we teach that this is not a checklist. And in the same way that when you recite, I believe, or we believe, it's the same as when you sing, like, you know, onward Christian soldiers, you, you don't believe you're in the army, right? Yeah, it, it is funny how how many times when I was a pastor, people would say to me, and I'm sure Lillian, you've heard this too. Like, 
I mean, I just don't say the line about born of a virgin because I don't believe it. Or I cross my fingers behind my back. I'm like, right. kind of missing the point. Like, right. that's not why we do the creed that you only say the things yeah. you actually believe. <laughs> you know, the, those, I was none of totally... us really believes any of it. You know, if, if we were like put on the rack and stretched, most of us would recant any line of the creed in a heart. There's nowhere in scripture where Jesus says like, listen, everybody like time out. I'm going to be gone soon. This is the most important thing. You have to believe my mother was a virgin. Right. But I think that most people don't, most Christians also don't believe that like the poor should really be privileged either. I mean, like it's true of the creeds. It's also true of like almost everything Jesus said. We're just not, we shouldn't kid ourselves that because we are Christians, our lives are objectively organized around Christian principles. They are not. Uh, and Christianity sort of allows for that and kind of predicts that. In fact, that's uh, one of my – I don't, I don't want to – maybe we'll get there, but my number two plausible claim is that people are like sheep and that the road is narrow and the road is wide is like one of the most plausible claims in the world to me. And so that's baked in, right? Wait, so that's we one you do agree with, Dan, right? Yeah, that's I find super plausible. Yes. Ooh, well, let's let's talk about that. I want to hear about that. <laughs> okay. Well, we can we can just jump to it. I'll I'll skip a I'll skip around a couple here. So I, I'm next anyway. So we'll move on. All right. So I'll go with my number two. I find it very plausible that you know Jesus especially describes people as sheep and and God as a shepherd. And I would combine this with the idea that the the road is narrow that leads to life and wide that leads to destruction. Now, I don't interpret that one as being about salvation, destination. I'm a universalist. Tony knows this, Lillian, you don't. But like, I'm like, I'm so universalist that for me, it's more like, gee, I really hope there's another life. <laughs> and in that life, nobody, for sure, nobody goes to hell. But I just would really like to be more confident that there is something after this life. So that's that's my eschatology. But uh, the road being narrow and wide, as applied to this life, I just think like is so true. I mean, I, I think that, you know, plausibility structures are a part of this, of a part of us being like sheep. Sheep are herd animals. They all move the same direction. Once a couple people start going, everybody follows them. You know, we talked about 1971 and the plausibility of the world ending soon and all these things, you know, coming true or whatever. I just think we are. I mean, I think I, I have been kicking around this phrase that maybe I'll turn into a book someday called 90% sheep. And the idea is that on any given issue of all the people who have an opinion about something, 90% of them are just sheep. They just have an opinion because they've heard someone else have an opinion. And 10% of people have the requisite experience or study. Maybe it's their job. Maybe they've, you know, they've gone through it or something. And then for any one person, myself included, of all the things I have an opinion about, for 10% of them, I have the requisite experience and knowledge. And for the other 90%, I'm a sheep. I'm parroting what somebody else believes that I look up to or find plausible. I just think that this is true of human beings. And I love that Jesus sees that. And I, I like being able to practice my Christianity with that in mind, that I'm not being judged by God for being that way. I God knows I'm that way. Jesus knew we were that way, right? So and then I can go, okay, so what's next? How do I be, how do I follow Christ knowing that I'm 90% sheep? 
you know, and then like maybe I'll do it with less hubris. I don't know. That's so countercultural, though, because like it flies in the face of that desire to be unique and special. Well, it's interesting you should say that. I don't, we don't need to wrap all the way back around to your item about the creeds and, and Tony's pushback, but there is a connection here in my mind. I think of that issue with like this historic language, which can be the creeds, but can be some of the other like poems and, and, and famous you know bits we have. One way to look at it is just the trade-off between individualism and collectivism. So if you want to look at the individual lens, it's like, look, actual people died over this. They lost their lives. It was coercive. I don't ever want to be coerced. It's just me and God. And actually, nobody has any idea what's going on between me and my creator. That's true. There's value to that. But then there's also value and beauty to collectivist things. And you lose some individualism, but you get this other thing. And you lose some of the beauty of the collectivist stuff if you go full individual. And it's just a trade-off. It's like baked into the cake. You know, this cake is salty. And so certain flavors aren't going to work in it, you know, and then you have to have this other cake. I, I probably shouldn't push the cake analogy too far because uh, cake is usually sweet. Um, but so there is a bit of that individual collectivist thing. And so, yeah, you're you're seeing that I'm I'm pushing it back against that. You know, it's the supreme autonomy and individualism of the modern Western world, which I think is actually probably our highest ideal as a culture. And actually in Seattle, especially, I think where I live, uh, we are kind of the, the clearest example of this, of, of metropolitan areas in the United States compared to the Midwest or the South or, or even New York, where you have these ethnic enclaves and, and neighborhoods with long ties, you know, to, to Bed-Stuy or, you know, whatever. Seattle is like the dream of a Seattleite is to have a 3,500 square foot home where you don't ever have to talk to a neighbor if you don't want to, but you can simultaneously walk to cool coffee shops and restaurants and you have enough money and time to get out into nature away from all your neighbors to have your kind of sacred experience. And it is like maximally autonomous. But it's also the epitome of like, it's the heartland for the spiritual, but not religious, right? Like I find God in the woods and in the sunset. And the part yep. that is so irritating with that is that statistically speaking, those people are in the majority now. Like if you're honest, the people who believe you find God in the sunset by yourself, you know, you can read great books on your own. That is the majority. But intrinsic to that self-identity is this sense of specialness and uniqueness and that they are going against the grain. So like inevitably that person says, you know, this will really shock you, but I find God in the sunset. I don't think God exists in a building. And I say, well, this will probably shock you, but you are in the mainstream of America. <laughs> You're normal. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing right, interesting right. about what you said, let alone shocking. You know, what is countercultural is, is to actually worship something other than yourself. I think you're right. That's good analysis. But I feel like Tony's going to bristle at something there. Well, I just think it's I agree with what you're saying, Dan, but it also leads. I think there's there's a corollary implausible statement that's a part of Christianity. And I think it's implausible that Christianity teaches that everybody has agency. Everybody has individual agency. Like at least the Calvinists get this right, that if you really believe mm. this stuff, you have to concede that the God of the universe is, is running the show or just subject Christianity to a Marxist critique and say like, we are completely 
like all those Seattleites who think they have this perfect autonomy, they are just living very patterned lives. Super patterned. Right. They're patterned after somebody who's perceived to be iconoclastic. Right. Yeah. And it's, and it's being controlled by Bill Gates and Sergey Brin and Jeff Bezos. Right. And Jeff Bezos and, and, they're buying their Tesla and they're like, look how freaking autonomous I am. Yeah. I just oh, bought yeah. a Tesla. It's like we we are absolutely subsumed by structures and superstructures and we walk around. It, it's, it, it, it's a fallacy to believe that we have all this autonomy and agency, but that's the, the entire system thrives on that belief that we have all this agency and and christianity both liberal and conservative also lives on this lie that like oh it's up to you you're freely choosing whether you follow god or not this is a hundred percent your choice and no it's not it's not it's very very little of it is your choice well, that that comes up a lot on a lot on the show, but I do think that the life and way of Jesus provides a middle path through that. So I think that I think that Jesus understood that is basically what I'm saying. So I know it's true that market driven Christianity assumes all the things that our Western culture assumes that we have tons of free will. Like even though scientists and psychologists can point out that we don't have as much free will as we think, the American ethos is obviously super individualistic, super choice driven. But I think Jesus sees through that. And then the second thing about Jesus is that he operated on an old school discipleship, you know, monks following the spiritual leader model, which is basically the way out of that. Like the the best way to activate your free will is to cultivate new habits because you're still going to be a creature of habit no matter what. You can't make yourself not have habits. What what do you have control over? You have some control in the moment. And you have and you have less control that stuff we were talking about, like living the autonomous Seattle life. I have pretty quite a little bit of control over that, very little control over that because I'm in this big stream. But if I inculcate new habits in myself, that is where I use my will to really meaningfully change the direction of my life. And so only people in 2021 who say I refuse to get all of my information and social cues from my echo chamber on social media. You have to opt out of that in order to habitually put yourself in front of other people that don't already agree with you because the default will be you will be formed by the people in your echo chamber, which algorithms will choose for you based on the stuff that you find least resistance. Which, which by the way, I think makes religious community at this moment in history really interesting. Because it's 100%. one of the places where people are there around something else, you know, and I know we can be segregated on politics, but I pastor a purple church in a purple state and a purple town, you know, and yeah, it's one of the few places we actually have conversations where we're going to get challenged on that stuff. And the church at, at its worst, you know, caters to the one group of people and sprinkles a little Jesus quote on top of it and says, you know, like, here's my opinions on family life or the importance of a good marriage. And, you know, but perhaps Jesus said it best, like perhaps. Right. Yeah. I just, I'm basically agreeing with you as that. I think you might even read Jesus talking about, you know, 
basically telling these people he came in contact with, don't be the sheep. Like, don't just mindlessly follow the Pharisees and their posture toward the Roman oppressors. Like, there's another way to get through this that I'm offering to you that seems off the grid, but I want you to think of these principalities and powers in a more spiritual sense. There's a way you can liberate yourself from the oppression you're living under in Jerusalem, but it's not what the Pharisees are saying. Like the Messiah is not going to come and be a political figure who's going to rescue you from the Romans. Like you have to change your thinking and break free from the structures they're giving you. Those aren't the only options. So anyway, that's, that's my roundabout agreement with you and your take on that most people are just you know follow along like sheep and jesus was trying to break people out of that you might have guessed it this is that second single the song is called yeah that's the one that comes out this friday and there's that pre-save link for spotify But let me also tell you about the Patreon community. So you can support this show financially at patreon.com slash Dan Koch. There's a link in the show notes there as always. And patrons get access to at least two exclusive episodes per month. The most recent is also a fun one. Uh, The Big Five, Sari, Sarah, Myron, Tripp, and I got together and did a live director's commentary for the Christian Netflix film A Week Away. You can listen to it. We'll tell you when to start the movie, and you can listen at the same time. Uh, listen as you watch at the same time that we watch, or you can just listen back to it and uh, hear our jokes and maybe listen to it sped up if you have one of those podcast players. Um, we do get into a little bit of uh, serious stuff there. We also make a lot of jokes about the film. It was very, very, very fun for us. I hope it's fun for you to listen back to And also, patrons get access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only. And uh, that's a huge resource. So, patreon.com slash dancoke, and enjoy a few more seconds of this Havana Swim Club track, which is called Yeah. going so tony give us a plausible claim i think one of the more plausible things that i was taught growing up is that god exists and that jesus of nazareth was somehow uniquely connected to god and i think that's going to be a claim that as you've already mentioned lillian like this new gallup study that came out a couple weeks ago that now for the first time in american history People who belong to faith communities are in the minority at 47%. And, um, you know, I watch Bill Maher every week on HBO and love his show, even as he disparages not just religion, but just like belief, any belief. And obviously we've, we have lived, all three of us have lived at a time when vocal 
atheists have come to the fore as public intellectuals. And they've just simply been like a snowplow through culture, making room for other people who had doubts about the divine, that there is even anything supernatural beyond the material. And they're aided in their work by the fact that, you know, every time a Christian is on television to give the counterpoint of view, they're, they're bonkers or they're hateful or they're preaching judgment. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I continue to think that the Christian claim that there is, there is a deity and that there was a person who really lived for 33 years who had some kind of unique connection with or even incarnation of that deity. I think that's a plausible claim. I don't think it's a slam dunk. I'm not saying I don't have my doubts about the whole, the whole package. I just think it is still a plausible claim, even in a disenchanted Charles Taylor scientific age. Hmm. All right, we uh, all agree. Then we well, can I would, no, <laughs> I was gonna. I have some thoughts, but I wanted to see if Lillian did first. No, I agree. God exists, right with you. Plausible to me. <laughs> Six days. Out of I'm seven. not saying he exists or she. Seven. I'm just saying it's plausible to you make find the it claim. Plausible. I was just gonna say that, like, that is something I have been struggling with recently. I've I've found myself redrawn to a lot of my faith. Two particular ways come to mind. One is through listening to the the pod, podcast made by uh, as we're recording this. You know, yesterday's episode came out with trans regret Snoopy. She's a friend of mine that goes by an anonymous handle, and her Bible podcast is like it in so many ways is just like evangelical piety. But she's not hung up on all the purity culture stuff and a bunch of kind of other culture war stuff. She's just like a reconvert uh, in her 20s, uh, I believe in her 20s, late 20s, early 30s, as a trans woman to Christianity and just like stoked on the Bible and just like studying it and has four translations with her for every episode and brings on her friends who range wildly, you know, a gay semi-practicing Baptist or an atheist Jew or whatever. And like listening to her taps into something of like, the future, I think, of a, of a Christianity re-sprouting from the ashes of Christendom, basically, and all the culture war stuff that goes along with that in our time and place. And then the other thing calling me back is is really kind of Catholic and Catholic adjacent, you know, Episcopal would count here, like the liturgy and the aesthetics and missing going to mass and missing being in beautiful church spaces. And as I've been kind of getting back into some of that stuff or just feeling like a a draw back in, I do find myself always struggling with the kind of factual claims about Jesus's divinity as like a a thing where it's like, if I'm, it's not like I, it's not like I know it's false or even think it's false. It's more just like, it's more that it, it puts this level of like proof that I feel like I need to have, like it's this big claim that is like over overshadows just the, the hour by hour practice of following Jesus of living like Jesus. Right. And it's, it's causing some cognitive dissonance for me. I don't, I apparently don't have very good language for it right now, but it it's interesting that your thing hit on that for me. In some ways though, Dan, this is such a great example of where 
worship addresses that space that's not in our head having to do with intellectual ascent or like a movement of the emotions caught up in the Holy Spirit, but like goes to this other place and says, it is not about what you are thinking in this moment. It is about showing up and singing this song with these other people. I mean, you know, I want to acknowledge, yeah, I have, I have nights where I'm up at three in the morning and I think, oh my goodness, it's just the lights go out at the end of your life and you don't exist. And you know, this deep emptiness, right? And I've had times where I've shown up in church feeling that way. And that's why I'm so glad to have other people around me singing and talking about these expressions of a different reality. And I think we don't talk enough about how our heroes in the Christian tradition were in the past, not people of certainty, but mystics who struggled. Teresa of Avila, you know, somebody who rocked my world when I first studied her. And just that most of what she writes is about how miserable the dark night of the soul is. And you realize there's not a new depressing angst-ridden thought we can have that hasn't already been had. And then the idea that you would receive this mystical vision and you would write about it, but you wouldn't get another one for the rest of your life. Like you're feeding on that one moment where you were transported and you knew that God was real and you knew that, and you know, you lean into that. It's that's Mm -hmm. sort of what the worship is, right? Right. But Lillian, those people were surrounded by a culture in which belief in the divine was Possible. Not consensus, f-ing unanimous, yeah, unanimous, yeah, massive plausibility. It was implausible yeah. to believe that there wasn't a God. So they did. Ha- it was like I, I'm with you. You know, they fell backwards in the trust fall, and all these other Christians had their arms out to catch them. And there are just going to be less and less people. Mm-hmm. Who find but th- so give that. yourself even yeah. more grace, right? And actually, that, yeah, that- I want to sure, sure. push back too. Yeah. I think there that there were economic and political forces around what the church looked like. When we say everybody believed X, Y, and Z, you have to remember that for so much of history, church was something that people showed up for, but they couldn't hear it, they couldn't understand it. It was in Latin. They didn't know what they were assenting to or or saying they believed in or not. There was a lot of fear-based stuff, you know. Um, And there were people who obviously had moments of doubt in the existence of God, like Teresa and others who say, you know, it's recorded there. And I think there were also people who it never occurred to them that they could have an experience of being touched by the divine. And then to read about these rare people, right? Like who are maybe not the sheep, the special ones. And to let that spiritual experience feed the whole body. It's why like we don't just make it up generation at a time. We go back and we read this stuff to, to encourage us because we, we don't live on that volume 10 spiritual ecstasy level. Well, I was thinking Mother Teresa was another example of this who had a drought of that experience for years and years and years and lived very much in our modern world of skepticism and And we didn't get to hear about it till after she died. You know, instead we all made her out to be perfect. And then we come to find out she's a chain smoker and all, you know, and that she, you know, and that she truly was bereft because she hadn't had that experience. I just think that's the reality we got to get back to. Love that. All right, Tony, give us something implausible. Here's a, a claim that I think was, it, it probably wasn't even ever verbalized or articulated as such, but it was just 
let's stick with the cake. It was just baked into the cake of the way that the Bible was used. And here's my claim that, that it was, that's implausible. I think it's implausible to assume or teach that you can understand the Bible without knowing anything about its context. Yeah. The context in which it was written. And yet we were brought up to let me, let me tell you this story about Jesus when his disciples were picking grains of head on the Sabbath and maybe some like very cursory half sentence about how Sabbath laws were important to Jews at the time, or, you know, I could just go on and on and on. Like never even brought up the fact that like, it didn't occur to me till years later, like no one ever said, Hey, do you ever notice how Paul, doesn't give a shit about Jesus' life, like never even mentions it. He only cares about the risen Christ. He does not care about miracles, parables, like none of that was important to Jesus or anything. Or like, Paul, let me tell yeah. you about this socio-political religious structure in Jerusalem and who were these Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians? Like, what was that all about? None of it was mentioned. This is the gift of the Reformation, right? And of Protestantism in general. Like we've talked about the gifts of the Catholic tradition and the pageantry, the liturgy and all of that. But this is our gift from our branch of the family is that a return to the rabbinic relationship with scripture that you didn't sit by yourself and read it, or you didn't simply wait for the Holy Spirit. You know, you have two or three people doing Havruta, arguing about the text. And not only, you know, the Jewish people record all their arguments and the different opinions of the rabbi. And that, again, they could have just picked one gospel that was really short and had everyone memorize it. Instead, they throw together all this stuff. And yes, the recovery of that you know, and the fact that you are the perspicuity of scripture, like Calvin says, that not only do you have the right to, to study the Bible, you have a responsibility to it as, as a layperson. You know, that this is our heritage that in the main line, I think we've squandered. Yeah, and we have squandered it, Lillian. Be- yeah, because I was brought up and not just in my youth group, but grow- from the pulpit. It was like, this is a magical book. And we can just pull like these five verses out of it. And I'm going to talk about them for 28 minutes. And I'll tell you what I go, when I go back to preach to the home church, I grew up at every single time. I realize these people are biblically illiterate. They don't know jack shit about the context of the first century. And I know a ton about it. So I always, 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 I'm like, now, and I, do, I don't do it in an offensive way. I'm just be, I'll just be like, now let's just remember, you know, Mark was the first gospel written. It was written around 70. Like Mark clearly did not have Matthew, Luke, and John available. We don't even know who Mark was. And I'll just do like a two-minute yeah. thing. Like let's set the context afterwards in the narthex. Everybody it's like, what I love about it when you preach is not only are you preaching, but you're teaching me as well. I'm you like two minutes of it. Yeah. No shit. Like why, are, why is not everybody who went to seminary doing this, but we just act like it's just a magic book and we can use any verses of it and, 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 and completely extracted from its context, which is ridiculous for any text. Well, this kind of tags along with one of my implausible things. Can I say that? Okay, then? go. Because this yeah, is my let's go out of order. Do it. So yeah, so I feel like you know, didn't get much 
exegesis and stuff in church, right? And then go to divinity school, realize I know nothing about the Bible. But I was sort of presumed that, yeah, Bible study was for ignorant Christians who wanted to use it to hurt people. You know, it was sort of what I thought. But you go to divinity school, you learn all this stuff. It's fascinating. And you're going, I can't believe nobody ever told me this or pointed it out. It's obvious, you know, if we were listening at all, right? And then I feel like I was told this is the implausible part. Tell no one, you know, learn all this stuff, right? Hmm. But leave it on the cutting room floor. And when you get into your congregation, don't share this with them because it will only upset them and it will rock their world. And they will, you know, they will not, they will not want to come to church. It'll be too traumatic for them. They can't handle it Hmm. as if, you know, I'm, I've got some maturity or intellectual ability that the people in the pews don't have, you know, that this would destroy their faith, right? And it really is interesting that even in the most progressive, open-minded, you know, theological education institutions, there's still a presumed functional fundamentalism on the part of the people in the pews as if yes. they're just really not quite as smart as us, so don't tell them. Um, so it was yeah. There's there's yeah. there's a clericalism in liberal Christianity. Like you put on that collar you're wearing today. Like nobody wore a collar in a congregational church I grew up in ever. But like that clericalism among liberal elites mm-hmm. has really grown, and they do. You know, a lot of liberal preachers they're as elitist and clerical as any catholic priest you will ever find or any evangelical megachurch pastor they think like i have got this shit figured out and you don't right and actually i mean so yeah don't don't rag on the collar it's a uniform right but but um (laughs) but also i think even among the clergy who would be like i would associate you know the the down-to-earth low church clergy who wears the like the wooden cross and the jeans and the Birkenstocks and is always dressed in polar fleece and, you know, all that. And it's like, oh, I'm no better than the rest of you. But that person is the most likely to say, I can't share any of this interesting scholarship on Jesus with the congregation because it would freak them out. And similarly, this is the adjunct of it, we're even worse with children. So in the mainline church, you know, hopefully today you go to my church, you hear Tony preach, you're going to get all this interesting stuff but there's still a way in which we treat children like little fundamentalists. And so they, you know, and I realized that when I first was in ministry and started reading confirmation papers in churches that had had good preaching and teaching about the Bible and all this stuff, and people weren't expected to leave their brains on the sidewalk outside the church. But then I'd read these, these confirmation papers of eighth graders where they would say, um, I'm really not sure I should get confirmed or be a Christian because I don't believe the world was created in six days. And I'm like, who the hell told you the world was created in six days? Who, you know, and they would spout this literalism, right? And what it was, was I think in the main line, we did such a poor job of faith formation. We avoided scripture with the grownups, but really with the kids, we taught them like three stories, you know, and we treat them like fundamentalists. We borrow youth ministry programs from conservative you know, fundamentalist churches too. And then lo and behold, we're shocked when in the ninth grade, they tell us this kind of thing, you know? So I think kids are the most open to nuance and mystery. They are constantly interpreting texts, videos, TikTok videos, et cetera, et cetera. And so for us to act like, ooh, hope they don't find out that the gospels are all a little bit different. They'd be like, thank you. That's the way the world is. We're already 
you know, sophisticated interpreters of various media. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I have my kid is one. And so it's like he's he's going to be literal only for a little while. But Tony, you've raised kids to adult age. And so you might have a better insight there. Well, I mean, I I don't know, Lily, and maybe you can help me. Isn't Stanley Hauerwas one of these people who like the, you should never read the Bible to children? It's like way too upsetting of a text. It's not a text that can be understood. You wouldn't like read Dostoevsky to a six-year-old and we shouldn't be teaching Bible stories to, you know, one of the things I do when, I, when I'm teaching a lot, you know, teaching youth is I'm like uh, speaking at a high school camp or something. And I'll say, how many times you heard the Noah and the Ark story? And they're like, oh, three dozen times. It really lends itself to children's Bibles and stuff. I'm like, you know how the story ends, like with Noah naked and drunk on a beach and like his grandson sees him and he's so pissed off that he like threatens to kill him and says, I never want to see you again and expels him from the family. Like, ah, yeah, they ended the story before that part. And that's just an example of like, (laughs) that's part of the story. That's a big part of the story or yeah. or the fact that they get even even this, even the fact that they get off the ark and the first thing Noah does is kill an animal and burn it. And this and it's only the second sacrifice in the Bible, second animal sacrifice in the Bible after Cain and Abel. And it's like he carted that freaking animal around for months and months, for years, probably till the water receded enough, gets it in that poor freaking animal gets slaughtered and burned because God wants the pleasing scent of the burning flesh up to heaven. And then you just like, let's just break down that cosmology of like that God is up and we're down and you need to burn an animal and blah, 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 blah. But you you can't tell any of that to a six-year-old, you know, but it's like, that's this shit you should be teaching to a 16, 17 year old when they're starting to deal with complexities in literature and stuff like that. But I think even from a very young age, our kids in school, certainly once they start school, they are being given the tools of criticism, right? Of literary criticism. So to not apply those to the Bible makes us look stupid. So, you know, I think even a very young child can hear this is a really weird thing that people used to think was a good idea. And later we learned it wasn't take slavery, for example, you know, this is something people used to do. You know, people used to say prayers that their enemies, babies heads would be crushed on rocks. You know, that's probably in there as an object lesson to say, let's not do that. Right. But to hide all that or to just read it and then not comment on it. That is bizarre. That is bizarre. And if we're not doing that intellectually challenging work, they're going to do it at a sort of sophomoric level and the way our culture does it, which is to say, oh, I believe in dinosaurs, so therefore I'm not a Christian. I'm going to run through my implausible claim quickly because I'm more interested to talk with you guys about my my last plausible claim. The implausible claim is this particular subdenomination where I happen to have been born has a lock on the mysteries of God not just when compared to other religions, but even when compared to similar subdenominations. <laughs> I didn't get this all that much. A lot of listeners had this a lot worse than I did. You know, being from a my church, as I said, was interdenominational, so it it obviously didn't start that way. Uh, but I definitely got it from some teachers and and adults in the orbit of my Christian schools, especially junior high and high school. And so that one is just like. It's it's one of the worst house of cards because 
the kid makes one Muslim friend or one Catholic friend and the whole thing comes falling down. It's actually one of it's funny to talk to say it the way I said it, but it's one of the saddest things because it's so insane. It it holds up to no scrutiny for 30 seconds from any adult. And yet it can become so plausible to a group of hundreds of adults who all go to church together. And if that's not evidence of us being 90 percent sheep, I, I don't know what is. Who's to blame for that, though? I mean, I, I, I kind of have to. I have to go to the clergy on this one, you know, like, I think this is our great shame, but I think like a lot of times we'd rather have an internecine argument with a fictional colleague in the ministry or professor from seminary around the, the hair splitting differences between our denominations or the way we do worship, et cetera, et cetera. And then we like display this to the public, you know? And I think particularly when you can't assume any familiarity with Christian tradition, you have all these people who've never experienced it and they walk into church and they say like, okay, what are you doing? And we say, well, I'll tell you what I'm not doing. You know, we're not like those Catholics over there. Infant baptism. Yeah. Yeah, Like we ordain women and I'll do your gay marriage. And they're like, okay, like what does ordination mean? Or, you know, when you're up there talking with your eyes closed, who the hell do you think you're talking to? It's like, well, I'll tell you what I don't think. I don't think it's a white man with a beard who we call the father. You know, we're answering questions that no one is asking. Hmm. Yeah. Dan, I Ivan have one of my implausible ones is, is related to what you're saying. And that's that the church, and I'm not talking about a denomination. I just think the church writ large, that the church claims to have exclusive access to the divine or yeah. to salvation or whatever. You know, there was a Latin phrase in the medieval church, extra ecclesiam nulla salus, no salvation outside the church, which is just a way for the church to claim a monopoly on the sacraments yeah. right. And on the path to salvation, and there are still, although, you know, you're not going to have it, hear anybody quoting that old Latin phrase anymore, it's still operative in the vast majority of the church, maybe not in the liberal church, but in yeah. the Catholic church and in the evangelical oh, yeah. church, that we have some kind of unique, right. it's, it's be either because of the Bible or because of our sacramental history or the line of succession of, of popes or whatever you, whatever you want to make up mm-hmm. and be like that's why we're the only we're the conduit to the divine exclusively so i right. think it's related to what, what it's related said is but there, there's a simple psychological explanation for why that stays around you tell a hundred people you are the really special ones yep. the yeah, people in yeah. other groups don't have what you have and 90 of them will lap that shit up per- they just will progressive yeah. churches this is our greatest sin i think and we claim not to have it, which is always a sign, you know, that you're in trouble, right? But that we say, yeah, that we say, you know, um, our version of it is we're not like those ignorant, literalistic, fundamentalist, right. judging, exclusive people. We're really special because we're not like that, which, of course, comes off as incredibly exclusive and judgmental. And we don't even see it because we're having this imaginary conversation with somebody who's not even going to church anymore, you know? Yeah. Wow. Okay. So we're going to, we'll do this as quickly as possible. We we're we're fudging by a few minutes oh. here, but I wanted to get through one more round of plausible. Cause I didn't want to, I didn't want to go twice as many implausible. So here's my number one, most plausible item. So remember I started with number two, 
A personal relationship with God is the beating heart of religion. This is something I was raised with as an evangelical. That say you that know, again. Say that the, again. A personal relationship with God is the beating heart of religion. That's the center. And I understood it to some degree as a kid. I don't think I was – I wasn't given very many instructions on how to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It might, the joke I make is that I what I took it to be was don't masturbate and have your quiet times, which is really not what it is. Uh, and I found those instructions later through mostly Catholic contemplatives um, and other contemplatives. And then I thought, oh, this is – and I've had a full circle on that on that claim, on that phrase of personal relationship. But in my experience and in the experience of, of people who have written about this, once you have an experience that you take to be a direct interaction with God's infinite love and joy and acceptance of you, it's hard to say that anything other than that could be the center of religion. And I know that not everybody experiences that. And there are people you know, we don't have we don't have the same brain wiring. Neuroatypical people, specifically, I think, have really interesting stuff to add here in the way that they experience the divine. But I, I think just across the population, generally speaking, that like, yeah, you come in contact with God, or at least that's what you know. When I when I'm being most careful, I say I've had experiences that when I describe them and I they read like the experiences of other religious people. So whatever we're going to call it, this is it. This is religious experience. And I, I have a little sub point that, that ties in with this that I find plausible too, which is that God is like the father in the prodigal son and these other parables that Jesus teaches. This is all one thing for me, right? Like you have this experience of God, you experience this insane transcendent acceptance. And in my case, just an opening of a reservoir of joy that I never knew existed and that completely – it changed my religious life for from then on out. I first had one of these experiences maybe eight or so years ago. So that to me remains very plausible. Uh, and I think that even people who stay on the outskirts, people who are not in the 47% of those who identify as a member of a church or something like that, I think a lot of people have had an experience like this of some shade, and they have an intuition that this is related to the meaning of the universe, whatever that is. And so it, it actually allows me to be more open to people's, you know, varieties of religious experience to to coin a phrase, not. Yeah. So that's, that's all I'll say about it. I'm curious what you guys think. I'm curious for Lillian to find it beautiful and Tony to push and back. And Tony, you go first. Well, I just think, Dan, what do you say to people who've never had those experiences yet remain religious? If you, yeah, and it's not the only, it's not yeah, like the, if you, if, if you're, if yeah. you're saying this is the heartbeat of religion and somebody's like, I've never, I've never heard the voice of God. I've never mm-hmm. had a, an experience of transcendence. Yeah. I hang on to faith by my fingernails totally and like i go to worship every week because them them are my people and i got nothing else to go on you know yeah that's a very like it seems to me the potential criticism of it is it's a very self-centered claim to be the the pulsing heartbeat of religion like i don't think any catholic would say that i think any catholic would say oh the eucharist is the heartbeat of religion. You know, I just read Andrew Sullivan's column from Easter 
was about that. Like mm. going back to church post COVID and vexed with all these doubts or whatever. And, and even like during the priest pedophile scandal, he used to go to mass and sit in a side chapel in the chapel of St. Francis in New York, you know, and then like he would only go into the nave just to take communion. He didn't want to hear the homily. He didn't want to hear any of the bullshit about the announcements of the Catholic church and let's pray for the Bishop and all the bullshit they do. All he did was want to take the Eucharist. And so I mean, it just seems like a pretty subjective claim to let make me, it plausible. Yeah, let me nuance it a little bit. I would, I'm, you're helping me. I would rather say experience of God is the beating heart than personal relationship with God. That's the language I was given was personal relationship. Okay. I would, yeah. I would want to say something more like direct experience of or something like that, uh, which is relational. But I experience God in the Eucharist first of all. And then the second thing I would say to nuance for someone who hasn't had these experiences is one, you can experience God through other people, not, not just through a, a direct experience. And two, I know that other, that people, I have friends who have tried to have these experiences and have failed to have them. Yeah. Sarah Lane Ritchie is, you know, even the language friend you use, Dan, and they have failed as opposed to, or it has, not, has happened. not happened. Right. But yeah, it has not but happened. there's such a bias yes. there that you bring totally. from your upbringing, right? Like it's like, you know? Right. And I don't yeah. mean it. Of course, I don't mean that they have failed in that sense. I just mean it hasn't happened for them. And and to that, I would just say, well, that problem for me is the same as the problem of evil and suffering. I mean, the world is just truly unfair. This life is unfair. I hope that the next one's fair. I hope that in that one, everybody experiences God in a full way. And yeah, I mean, I the good criticisms, I, I accept all but of them. But it's also like, too, it, they could be saying, like, that's not the primary question that they use to interrogate their own life with. Like, I, I think the mm-hmm. fact that, you know, that does seem like a holdover question for you. And yet it's something I do think that mainline so-called Protestantism has thrown out. We sort of said, you know, OK, let the other side have the personal relationship with Jesus. And yeah. we're going to be the intelligent above it all ones over here. And I do think that, yeah, with that comes sort of an elitism, but also in this time where you don't have to go to church, you're going to be like, what the hell's the point? You know, if, if I sit through an hour of your service and I don't hear about any experience of God or the divine in this, like I could have listened to NPR, you know, could have stayed mm-hmm. home. Yeah. Well, um, let's hear your guys's one more plausible claim and then we'll wrap up. Ooh, I got a couple. I don't know which one to pick. You could say them both and we'll let's hear them both and we'll just respond okay. to one. Yeah. Prayer matters and works. Mm. And I'm going to say that I think I received mixed messages on this though. Um, yeah. The big message was prayer matters and works because we do it all the time. And we would have prayers of intercession where people's names would be read if they were going to have surgery and whatnot. I was not given the message that if you pray hard enough, your prayer will be answered the way it's going to be, you know, but I, I do think I also got this message that was like, we're above actually praying for what we want. That when one prays, one should in their intercessions pray for world peace or miserable people in other countries. And that, you know, generally we're, we're on sort of a march of progress and we don't need that much. And yet in the liturgy, the prayers are very much about us being in need. And to me, that's the plausible part. And 
for me, my world was rocked by evangelicals on this. And like, I remember I got a book by Catherine Marshall, the wife of Peter Marshall, the chaplain of the Senate. It's an old book, like, you know, I want to say in the forties or something like that. And it's, it's about prayer. And basically she makes in a very sort of populist, easy to understand way says, if you don't actually pray to God about what you want, like if you got cancer and you're not asking to be healed, like you are not having an intimacy with God. It's as if you got together with a friend and they said, how are you? And you were like, well, I'm really concerned about world peace. You know, no, how are you really? Oh, I'm concerned about Myanmar. You know, I'm up at night about that. No, how are you, Lillian, right? Like if you never take that to God, you deny yourself that intimacy, which is how that powerful thing happens. So that whole idea of prayer being powerful, I think is plausible. And yet at the same time, there can be an embarrassment about it, which says, but only certain kinds of prayer are good. And heaven forbid, it's an honest prayer. And that leads me to my other plausible thing that I receive mixed messages on, which is that confession matters. And that mm. that if there's one reason to go to church every week, it's for the prayer of confession. Um, oh, I love you know? that. Yep. And again, it was sort of explained like, oh, you know, all that language about sin and that, like, we don't really think we need that. That's sort of in case somebody here today needs it, you know, but the larger message of having it repeated every single Sunday means we're just assuming that somebody's done something wrong this week and we're going to give you some time to do this. Uh, Yeah. To me, that remains more powerful. And I reject the claims of both like the critics of religion and some within the religious tradition who say confession is damaging to one's self-esteem or as, you know, a way to be cruel to yourself, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, no, there's, there's shit that we should feel bad about and that we should be forced to think about and say sorry for. Yeah, we need to be careful about religious scrupulosity, which is basically a, a mental disorder and people should not be suffering from that, like a, a religious OCD. Yeah. But for most of us, A regular confession time is super healthy. I agree. Right, And don't strip it of its power. You know, don't make it like about nothing, right? Like make it long, have a real silence there. Like if you make it last 10 seconds, it it really does imply nobody's done anything wrong. I want to respond to your prayer thing. I, that is something I've really been kicking around for years now, which is, I love that idea that there is something fundamentally human about praying for God to heal you from something or your friend or your family member or whatever. And, and praying, even praying for a good harvest, there's like something creaturely about that. That seems beautiful to me. Yeah. I think of it like like prayer is like when you actually pray and you're real and you're saying what you really feel and want, right. The channel's open. It's like you've opened the channel and then God will work on your nonsense. So let's say you are praying, like you're just saying, my prayer is that this rival or this person I'm jealous with, I pray that they don't get that job and all that. You can't sit with that in prayer for very long before the Holy Spirit starts working on you and says, shape up, you know, and if you never went there with that intimate desire, you could just coast along. I think that where people get tripped up is that intercessory prayer, because of our need to get rid of cognitive dissonance as human beings so often becomes tied up with some formulaic explanation for which prayers are answered and which are not. Mm -hmm. And that is when it becomes really antichrist. I mean, it's, it's, 
it's the exact opposite of the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. It's like, no, 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 you just were unjust. And here, and I have an explanation for why you were unjust and why God didn't answer your prayer. And we do that because we have a hard time living with indeterminacy, uncertainty, or whatever. But that indeterminacy and uncertainty, if we can really lean into it, and this is something that existential therapy does, which I'm in, recently interested in, is like getting into that fundamental uncertainty of being human and like sitting with that. And and so praying for that kind of stuff can can force you for those seconds or minutes to be with that uncertainty. That's like a side benefit of it. And so that's I'm still thinking about all that stuff, but I find that really interesting. Lillian, I'm with you on confession and not on prayer, I'd say. I mean, that's where I currently sit. And I'll tell you one thing that's interesting for me about confession is I have noticed when I've been to church recently with my kids who are 16, 19, 21, and not particularly predisposed toward belief in a Christian God or anything like that, or maybe they're believing God, but the whole, all the trappings around it, they don't, it, I get, when the confession comes up, that's where I feel like, Ooh, this is, this is weird. This is a weird kind of archaic thing. And I almost immediately think to myself, like, do my late adolescent children ever sit in silence meditating on the shit they've done wrong in the last week? No, no, they never do. They're they're They never are quiet. They never don't have earbuds right. in or, you know, from the time they wake up and their phone wakes them up with yeah. music to the time they fall asleep with earbuds in, they are, they're never quiet and they're sure as shit never thinking about what they've done wrong unless they got busted for something. So that's where I thought like, wow, that is a, right. That is such a formative practice that we miss out on when we don't go to church. I don't know, but can I push back really briefly? Just thinking about though, the, the types of stories in film and TV that young people as well as adults, you know, fill our days and evenings with, there is a lot in, there's a lot in the kind of stories that end up becoming popular about wronging people and having those wrongs righted, you know, that's like, yes, a, that's one I of the best story that, arcs, but yeah. I don't think they, they, you don't get to the end of that film and up on the screen is like, now sure. I'm going to, you now everyone sure. in the theater is going to spend 60 seconds in silence, reflecting right. on how you've done shit yeah. just as bad as the villain in this movie. Uh, right. That right, doesn't right. Great art makes you do that because it's not as simple as a villain. It's, you know, it's a, it's a complex, it should. It should make it, you do it that. Should, yeah. yeah. And I actually think, I mean, I think young people are very hard on each other and themselves. You can talk about the council, cancel culture and all that. I think one of the most beautiful things about the prayer of confession is the mercy that follows and the acknowledgement that, you know, you can be forgiven even though you don't deserve it. And by the way, it's, you don't turn to your neighbor and ask for forgiveness. It comes directly to you through through Jesus, through God, right? And it's between you and God. Like I'm, I am a fan of the, you know, lightly structured confession where there's silence. The kind of prayer of confession I hate is what you often find in my denomination where the ministers write the whole liturgy. And so they'll write a unison prayer of confession where they make the congregation 
confess to doing all the stuff that annoys the minister, you know? So it's like, and Lord, forgive us because indeed we don't care about the earth and we don't recycle and forgive us for, you know, not giving more to missions and forgive us for, you know, like not being as good Christians as our pastor wrote this. And the people are reading it and they're like, what is this? You know? And they feel like they have to pick a different, interesting, nuanced sin. I'm a big fan of like those things we have done, which we ought not to have done. And those things we have left undone which we ought right. to have done, and then an awkward silence. But I will say, to go back to the power of intercessory prayer, the so-called selfish prayer, we ask God for what you want. Often for me, that becomes my prayer of confession. When when I try to confess, I usually am like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm doing okay, or, oh, no, I know the thing. It was that, you know. When I do, when I have to say what I want, I really expose my own sin, and I have to sit there and say, like, really? Is that really, like, the most important thing I'm saying? Even when it's something you you desire that is not, you know, like, let's say I want to be healed, right? Just the act of doing that and saying it makes you think of other people who need healing even more. You know, you go yeah. there, right, in a deeper way that I think is really powerful. And again, we we have to teach this, though. The intercessory prayer with God is not in order to give God a memo or a Christmas list. It is to create intimacy with God, that God wants to know what we want in the same way our best friends do. And then, you know, and they don't like your best friend doesn't say, how are you doing? And then says, "Okay, I'll get right on it. I'll fix all that. You know, it's the relationship with God. All right, Tony, you get the last word of plausible. And then I'm going to end with just a couple funny, implausible things from a a buddy. Here's my here's my second plausible is that I think it's plausible to claim that the Bible is a relatively trustworthy record of some shit that really happened. Hmm. And by that, I mean the whole Bible, but hmm. also I mean specifically the Gospels. I think that the Gospels yeah. are and I I'm, I'm saying this as somebody who spent a lot of time reading the apocryphal gospels and a lot of time reading a ton of other Roman history that was written around that time, you know, whether it was Augustus's biography or, you know, uh, a lot of Roman history, uh, Suetonius and stuff like that. I've, I've read a ton of that stuff because that's a field of mine and an interest of mine. And I think the gospels stack up, well to those other kind of documents that are generally considered very historically reliable. Obviously the gospels were written with a, a propagandistic end in mind. And that was to convince people that Jesus was the long awaited Messiah. So mm-hmm. it, they're, they're not straight objective history. Like we think of history. Nevertheless, I think they're generally trustworthy and reliable. So put me in the camp with Josh McDowell on that. Well, he would want to go a lot further <laughs> than you. But yeah, I mean, I remember reading Dale, is it Dale Allison and Luke Timothy Johnson, reading yeah. each of their kind of like 200 pager, you know, summary books. And they basically said the same thing. They said, look, as far as we can tell, Jesus of Nazareth was the kind of guy who did and said these kind of things. Probably not exactly to the person it has him saying it to at that time. Because they take liberties, especially with the narrative structure and the timing and all of that. But like these were his sayings. The Sermon on the Mount is basically his stump speech. Like that's like the main gist of what he preached. And he was crucified and people did experience him 
as resurrecting from the dead. And especially when you compare it to something like, yeah, the, that the hagiography of Roman emperors and stuff like that, which is silliness. It's like, oh, they, they were really trying to get, you know, they were trying decently to get some stuff down that was more or yeah. less accurate about this guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I would even say that, you know, in general, I think the Hebrew scriptures are probably less historically accurate. Yeah. But nevertheless, give us a relatively trustworthy picture of what the life of ancient Israel, you know? Yeah, I have a hard time. My own limited study, which is probably much less than yours, is like anything before they're established in the land, you know, and they're maybe worried about exile. Everything before that, I'm like, I don't think that happened. Kind of mythopoetic. Yeah. 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 But uh, that doesn't mean it's not awesome and true. Right. Of course. Okay. Lillian, are you going to push back? Yeah, I am. I think you're you're imposing this question of is it true? Did it actually happen? Do I believe it factually? onto a body of texts that weren't collected with that in mind. Like, I don't think they sat down and said, you know, because again, we're not more sophisticated. I don't think we're making progress or becoming geniuses, right? Like, so they would recognize, you know, some of these conflict. And I don't think they said, okay, let's have the first section of all of the Jewish texts be like more myth, and then let's switch into history. (laughs) You know, it's, I think it's like, uh, no, but those genres, Lillian, those genres did develop over time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for sure, the gospel writers were not writing myth, right. whereas the ancient Israelites were like, we're going to we're actually going to finally write down the myth of Adam and Eve. Like we're going to that should be kept. So let's write it down. Like That's a prophets. myth. That we're so, gonna- I mean, you know, I believe that, you know, somebody recorded these words of the prophets, right? Like. Yeah, like Isaiah said these things, or there was a guy named Isaiah, and yeah, this is generally yeah, yeah. what he said. That I'm cool with that sec. I'm I'm fine with that point in history. Yeah, and I agree with you also on why they were written and how they were written. But that doesn't mean that modern readers can't ask yeah. modern questions of ancient documents, That's and good. modern readers have different questions of the Gospels than the original readers did. And one of the questions that we all get asked as Christian leaders is, are they trustworthy? Are they reliable? Did Are they recording some shit that really happened? And I think that's a question that the church or Christians can still plausibly answer. Yes, this is, it's a generally trustworthy record of stuff that actually happen you can nitpick and say like luke says jesus walked from point a to point b in a day he got it wrong because you can't walk that and i don't think jesus flew like superman but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that luke is not generally reliable chronicler of jesus and i hear also you're saying it's not just one historical document among many Right. It's not. Well, first of all, it's our only historical document that records the life of Jesus and, and the, and you know, the life of ancient Israel. So church, you know, documents that back it up. But there are some, you know, there's there are obviously some mentions of Jesus in, uh, you know, Josephus and in Pliny writes the letter uh, that mentions Jesus. I mean, yeah. So, yeah, that that's related to this question I have of like. I think it can reliably and plausibly be, be claimed that Jesus was a dude who lived and walked around and next layer, as I said earlier, had some kind of unique access or relationship to the divine. And yeah, I think we don't need to be ashamed to say that too. Like you can say, you can yeah. be a thoughtful, critical 
thinking person and still say that it's not an either, or not either. I believe in dinosaurs or I don't. hundred percent. Well, guys, we're, we're basically wrapped up here. I just want to, I want to get these last bits in because I think one of them is actually interesting that maybe Tony and I will need to talk about in the future. Uh, One buddy said spiritual warfare to him almost sounds like sorcery. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's truly like magic and he finds yep. that very implausible. And that's, I find that very interesting. And I wish we had time to talk. Same. About it. And I, I, and, and I, 10 years ago, at least challenged Greg Boyd to publicly debate me. And I'm like, I would come in as a spiritual warfare skeptic and you would have two hours in a public venue to convince me. And yeah, he wouldn't take me up on it, which just proves my case. It's well, <laughs> I'm, I don't know if it does. It's implausible. <laughs> Any thoughts on spiritual warfare, Lillian, briefly? Well, I'm against it. Okay. Like, you know, I, I mean, I try <laughs> to avoid it at all costs. You're a spiritual pacifist. Yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm like Switzerland, you know, like I just don't want to get into it either side. I don't want any thunderbolts thrown at me. No, but I believe in it. No, I believe in it. I believe in the powers of evil. I mean, I find it plausible in some ways, and maybe not in the way that you mean that's wrapped in some a particular church culture. Yeah, I think that there's a big difference between saying there are forces of evil that could be defined in any number of ways. Like Richard Beck, again, uh, gives a very plausible version, I think, where he says, look, spirits sweep through people groups. Xenophobia swept through the electorate in 2016, right? Like that's a spirit that is not just a bunch of individual people having xenophobic thoughts, I'm way down with stuff like that. But like this one is Malakuk and Malakuk wants <laughs> you to do X and Michael, the archangel actually has this other view, you know, like yeah. that's when I think it's impossible. I do think that, if, you that pray more, if you pray more, Michael's sword grows. Don't you remember that from the Frank Peretti <laughs> novel? Jeez, that sounds oddly sexual. Like okay. Weird, yeah. <laughs> Not oddly, just straight up sexual. One the thing, have you noticed though with all like whenever we make all this progress on like, oh, let's use inclusive language for God and not use gendered language and stuff. Nobody gives that to the devil. He's always masculine. Like nobody nobody stands up for <laughs> yeah. activity on the devil. <laughs> I guess probably people doing the language thing don't really believe in the devil. Or I don't know. Maybe. I mean, kind of maybe it gives the feminists a pass, you know. <laughs> okay, the the short funny one is I find Samson one of the worst legends just in general from the super hair to the donkey jawbone that feels like replacement riders coming in during a union strike. But that was pretty funny. Bro killed a lion. Are you uh-huh. kidding me? Yeah, but he just didn't find it believable, this buddy of mine. Okay, and then oh, this it's is your buddy. Oh, this cool. is my buddy, yeah. I'm just quoting my buddy. Yeah, These are all my buddies. You don't now. believe he had power in his long hair. <laughs> No, he was, yeah, he's saying he didn't believe in the magic hair. Then this is the last one. My buddy says, I also find the whole, oh shit, I thought I was marrying the hot chick, but just married and her ugly sister to be absurd. This is (laughs) Jacob with Rachel and Leah. He said, though I've never been blackout drunk at a wedding in 1000 BC, but like dude worked the fields for seven years because this chick is so hot and somehow they just slip him option B at the wedding night. To which my other buddy replied, I've been very drunk and hooked up to the point of passing out, but I always knew exactly who I was with. I think you'd need roofies to achieve that level of biblical trickery. 
I that that that's one that all has always seemed really dubious to me yeah. is that like you wait all that time and then you just bone the wrong chick at the yeah, last minute. It just Listen, does not. Seem- I think the world is full of people who got drunk and thought they're going to bed with one person and woke up and were like, holy cow. What's different about that story is he had to be married for the next seven years. Like that's the part yes. that's possible. is <laughs> like, and now I have to yeah. marry you. Oops. Like, yeah. That is, it's insane. Yeah, like, okay, well, that's, I guess, a good place to end things. Oh, can I give you my last implausible one? Oh, this is my last implausible one. Okay, throw it out there. God is dog spelled backwards. It's just stupid who, at every level. Who taught you that? Who people said that to you? People say this in churches across the board. You'll see little cartoon people like, did you know God is dog spelled backwards? I'm like, what is the freaking point of that? Wow. But that's I'm, not implausible. That's it, actually it's, it's accurate. That's actually true. It actually <laughs> is dog spelled backwards. English. And also like and the people who will agree with that are like the same people who are like, oh, I don't believe in dinosaurs, but I believe that. Like that's like this magical thinking that sweeps. I don't understand what do they believe that God's related to canines? Yeah, they're trying to say like dogs are a special window to God and that Oh, is that yeah. what they're saying? Oh. <laughs> I have never heard that is insane dogs and it's all like you know it's like well, what's Yahweh spelled backwards or like you know, it's just yeah but it's the kind of like nonsensical thinking that people say and like you but you say that I guarantee you say that so you go you know God is dog spelled backwards everyone's like oh because everyone loves dogs and cat videos and it's just yeah. That sounds like some Santa Cruz shit to me right there. I mean, yeah, that's your, having come from the Bay Area. That's just crazy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a good place to end. <laughs> what Yahweh spelled though? backwards depends on if you use the vowels. Um Okay, guys. <laughs> you thank two are you. both you two are both gonna get stoned to death for saying that word. What? Uh, dog? No. <laughs> Yahweh. <laughs> uh, Jehovah. Tony He and- said Jehovah. Tony and Lillian, I will put links to your public work, your websites or whatever in the show notes. Anything else you'd like to say before we end here? This is- Thanks for yeah. having us on, buddy. Yeah, what a great idea, Dan and Tony. This is really fun. It worked out even better than I thought because it was both funny and tremendously meaningful. Huge thanks to Tony and Lillian for coming on the show. I've got links to both of their websites in the show notes. Thanks to Josh Gilbert for editing the conversation per usual. He does a great job and he is available for more work. His email is in the show notes. Join the Patreon, patreon.com slash Dan Koch. And if you want some semi-tropical summer jams, add those Havana Swim Club tracks to your Spotify, Apple Music, or whatever else you use to listen to music. All those links are in the notes. We'll see you guys next week.
If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. 